I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, What's Joseph? My, no. (laughs) All right. Coming in hot. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> What's Joseph my nope? Nope. Take two. Take two. Everybody, this is Behind the Bastards, a podcast about the worst people in all of history. And let's just rip off that band-aid. We're talking mm. about Joseph Mengele for the next four episodes. Oh um, fuck. Yeah. The uh the, the the working title of the doc is just Joseph Mengele, Jesus Christ. Oh yeah. So, so stoked. Um, stoked mm-hmm. to be here. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. How you doing, Matt? I'm doing good. You know, I've been uh, I've been stoked to come back on the show um, and I've, I've had this bit, you know, ready to go for a while. Oh, yeah. Before I knew we we're going to talk about Joseph Mangala. I, I, I switched the soundboard and um, uh, oh, it's all it's all Jar Jar Binks. He's Great. And uh, <laughs> I now I'm realizing the Jar Jar soundboard is not going to work <laughs> for this particular episode. Well, you know, a lot of people will say, uh, this is actually an argument historians will make all the time, that, uh, <laughs> oh no. I love it personally. <laughs> a lot of historians will argue that Mangala was the Jar Jar Binks of the Nazi regime. That's in true. that, in that... He was an embarrassing and kind of sad character who nonetheless had an almost Forrest Gump-like availability around many of the most significant moments in the history of the Third Reich. Yeah, he was just around mm-hmm. inventing mm-hmm. has smiley face t-shirts mm-hmm. and yeah. seeing what 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 will happen if twins yeah. put together. He also uh, uh he was also briefly friends with Qui-Gon Jinn. But that's oh. a separate separate matter, separate matter, separate matter. Very very bad. <laughs> so this is I'm probably not going to do much charge on this episode just based on subject matter alone. Oh boy. So. <laughs> yeah. But for the record <laughs> I'm enjoying. Yeah. <laughs> good, good, Look, good. there's a lot we can say about the wisdom of that particular decision, but what I respect is that mm. you made a choice, Matt. Yeah. A lot of people in this life, 
you know, never have the courage to choose, and you did. So thank you. Yeah, I'm, unfortunately, I'm, you know, I'm someone who I like to commit to a bit. Um, you know, subject matter be damned. I'm like, you know, even yeah. if people don't so much enjoy Jar Jar coming in at in out of an episode with a, a evil Nazi doctor, it's like, hey, at least he's committed, right? Yeah, exactly. He being me, exactly. not, not Mangala. Yeah, well, he he was committed too. Uh, you got to give that to the man. So, mm. we have. Uh, <laughs> You know, we have do this we have podcast. To start? Like, yeah, we, we, we do. I'm what a, if I'm we afraid. just pull the ripcord and go like, yeah. let's talk about I don't know, fucking something fun. Cats, yeah. yeah. So no, we're not going to do that. We're going to talk. Although cats Joseph Mengele did cats or cats as in uh, James Corden in a bad costume. That's a bastard. We should talk no, about that. Is a bastard. We should talk about Joseph Mengele also liked cats. So oh, there you go. <laughs> um, yeah, he had a few. So <sighs> here's the thing. You know, we do a history podcast here where we talk about the worst people ever. Um, and we have a lot of different subjects. And because, you know, we've been doing this for so long, we'll we'll alternate between, oh, this week we're talking about a dictator. This week we're just talking about a fascist who was pretty good at chess or, or right. making fun of Ben Shapiro's book. And whenever we do those kind of like less intense episodes, we get... Uh, a message for we get messages from people being like how dare you cover this guy who's not as bad when you haven't done this other worst guy yet oh wow. and it used to be it used to be the person that we would get most often for that was um was kissinger right sure. people would be like how how dare you talk about i don't know so and so when you haven't talked you know, J- jordan peterson when you haven't done kissinger it's like <laughs> well jordan peterson was a little more fun than kissinger yeah, right <laughs> um since we've done the kissinger episodes now it's joseph mangala um oh. and all i have to say to the people who have been messaging me about him is be careful what you wish for shitbirds because here he <laughs> fucking is <laughs> so Good use of shitbirds, by the way. That oh, was, one of I my favorite like words. That was synergistic to uh-huh. uh, you know. Can I do my plug up top just in case Absolutely. people are like mango? Absolutely. Bye. <laughs> this is the time to do the plug, man. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, it's I have a, a Wire and Sopranos rewatch podcast. It's called Pod Yourself a Gun. That's that's what you look for uh, on the iTunes store. You guys have lots of reviews, like so many reviews. I feel like people listen to your podcast. So I'm going to say, hey, sure. you don't even have to listen to Pod Yourself a Gun. Just give us uh, five stars and review and, you know, and a Jar Jar yeah. quote and I'll be yeah. happy, dog. Yeah. Review bomb them. Uh, yeah. Positively, Is, please. Yeah. <laughs> five if, stars. if there's other wire podcasts, sabotage them, cut their break lines, mm-hmm. you know, go, go out there and do good. Yes. Um, Matt. What? First off, I want to ask, what do you know about Joseph Mengele? Like, if a caveman got thought out of ice and wanted you to explain the Holocaust to him, how would you explain who Joseph Mengele was? Um, all of my knowledge of Joseph Mengele comes from uh, the Slayer song, Angel of Death, um, <laughs> which doesn't tell you much. Um, but uh, it's that and... I I saw an info uh, like one of those like infographic you know like Kurtzgesite it's like a YouTube channel that has like uh, what if you know an asteroid hit the Earth and it's like a scientific take oh yeah on, yeah yeah so some weird uh, like off brand channel tried to do the same thing with Mangala and <laughs> oh, no and it's 
terrible like because yeah. the person who's like narrating it is still trying to do like a happy engaging voice and you can't really do that yeah um when you're talking about uh sewing twins together so um i know that he did that uh i know that he was uh i i i, I know how it ends i know um uh that he's i know he's bad and i know he was evil doctor uh, also, the he, video ends with uh, sound off in the comments if uh, yeah. uh, you agree with Dr. Mengele's exp- experiments. And I was like, that's not Wait, what's for serious. That's how it ends. Yeah, that's how it ends. And I was like, uh, this, that's a mistake. That is a weird, weird shit. Uh, some, that, you, never that's go unhinged. YouTube. No, yeah. that's unhinged. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's interesting that you bring up because you, you brought up a couple of times the sewing twins together stuff. Yes. There's a lot of stories about Mengele. First off, your basic contention he was an evil doctor. Absolutely accurate. Oh, um, obviously, this is behind the bastards. We're right, covering right. him. A lot of the stories about stuff Mengele did at Auschwitz are not entirely accurate in that mm. they are things that happened, but they're not necessarily things that Mengele did. And we're going to talk about that. The actual, the, the, the story of Mengele that has kind of emerged as more robust historiography has come out is a lot worse, I think, than the the stories that were coming out in the 70s, the boys from Brazil era sort of like right. like uh, uh, depiction of him. I think it's worse than you know, but it's also <sighs> different um, okay. in, some, in some important ways. So I, I do want to let people know up top, this is going to be maybe not the series you're expecting. We're going to spend all this week actually talking about, as much as we talk about Mengele's early life, we're going to be talking about the birth of the Nazi racial science medical community because you cannot extricate Mengele's yeah acts from that larger medical apparatus right um so without further ado joseph rudolph the red-nosed mengala why did i do that was born on march 16th 1911 in a little t- <laughs> i mean I, I like that you were just like hey you know what, what why what not do why it? not remember Nothing- christmas <laughs> yeah he's a march baby he's not that far off and you were like he got what am I saying? Okay, I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> Good God. <laughs> I can. <laughs> the ADL is preparing to firebomb us both out of our homes. <laughs> I, I just up top. I am Jewish, and uh, I also uh, get constantly brigaded by Nazis online. So yeah. And up top, I did not ask you to put in the Jar Jar Binks sound box. No, no, he did not. That was a pure pure you. (laughs) I did make the Rudolph the Red Nose. I don't know why. Anyway, he was born in a little town called Gunsberg on March 16th, 1911 in southern Germany. Uh, His father, Karl Mengele, was an engineer who designed farming equipment and owned a small manufacturing firm that produced it. If you are particularly in Europe and in Latin America... If you're like, hang out on farms, you will see equipment often that says Mengele on it. Um, oh, still? Is, yeah. Yeah. No, there's still a thing. Um, you didn't or at least they the were brand a little? Pretty recently. It definitely had an impact on the brand. I mean, I'm not going to say you have to respect them for continuing the name. It's like <laughs> if Hitler had a cousin who made calculators. And in like 1946, he was like, look, man, I was like, fuck that guy, but I'm not changing the name. Yeah, it's the TI-88. The yeah. TI-Hail Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
So Carl started his small manufacturing firm, repairing farm equipment. Uh, he had a little business partner for a while. They had a foundry where they would produce, you know, tool pieces. But the foundry burnt down, and mm. it might have been a little bit sketchy. I don't know. This happens to Carl like two or three times. Like his factory will burn down, and he'll get a bunch of insurance money and make a better factory. Um, but <laughs> yeah. also. This is night like the early 1900s, so I, I, I'm not surprised that a bunch of German foundries are burning down. It's yeah, it's, shit burned down a lot back in those yeah, days. Yeah. yeah, they didn't have fire extinguishers. They didn't believe in wind. You know, it was a different right. time. Um, so at the time that Joseph was born, Carl employed seven workers and was probably what you'd call upper middle class, starting to verge on wealthy. Joseph's mother was the formidably named Walburga Meng- Mengele, and with a name like that, you know you're talking about a tough customer. Well, yeah, like, Walburga, yeah, strong on plow for sure. Yeah, oh, for sure. Now she was three years older than her husband, um, and from a well-off family in Gunsberg, and as a result of being rich and very, very angry. She had kind of no fucks to give. Mm. Decades later, Joseph would describe his father as good-natured and soft-hearted, but his mother as determined and forceful. And, you know, periodically she would have to come in and like work the factory when her husband yeah. wasn't there or whatever. And like biographers will note, like all of his employees were fucking terrified of her. Um, right. I don't think this has any bearing on the man Mengele becomes, but it's fun context. So Carl and Walburga's firstborn baby had died a couple of days after being born. And so when Joseph came out, I think a year or so later and was healthy, he was celebrated by his whole family. In writings years later, Joseph would describe his early childhood as a secure, full home surrounded by extended family and hired help who all nourished and obsessed over him. During the first three years of his life, he was joined by two younger brothers, Carl and Alois. Um, There's just, you know, whenever you, I come on the show and you talk about like Nazis, I'm always waiting for like more of the like at home, like trauma, like, you know, early childhood trauma to like explain stuff. And I think consistently, that's almost never been the case. Yeah. And uh, that just, that bums me out more than anything. Yeah. It's interesting. We just did Coco Chanel, who ca- came from like a nightmare background, maybe like the most difficult childhood of any person we've ever talked about on this show. Yeah. Um, and we were talking during that about like, how often is it with these monsters that they have like some horrible, horrible childhood versus, you know, not. And honestly, I think the worst of them tend to grow up in reasonably secure homes. Um, yeah. you know, Hitler, Hitler's dad was kind of a dick, although I don't think exceptionally for the age, they were very poor though. His mom was sick, but she loved him. Like he, he grew up with like love and a family who cared about him. Um, that's just like, not, not a, not, that doesn't seem to have much of a protective effect from being one of history's greatest monsters. A lot yeah. of loving homes produce war criminals. I'm just trying to figure out how to raise my daughter. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know whatever I need to do to make her not do race science, I'll do it. And if yeah. it means being more strict, I guess I'll have to do it. I don't know, dog. No, I mean the answer is I. I think nobody knows. Nobody knows how to not make war criminals, which is why we have so many of them. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I don't. Maybe like if she ever considers doing a war criminal, like get one of those like little little spray bottles and like right in the nose, yeah. like like a cat. Like, like a cat. no, yeah, exactly. Don't do that. No, yeah. 
No <laughs> ethnic cleansing. Spray her as she's trying to measure a skull. <laughs> no, no, no. So yeah. Joseph's family was conservative and Catholic. So that may be a bit of a red flag, though. Yeah. Um, Norman Stone, who's an Oxford professor who analyzed Joseph's memoirs on his own life later, has claimed that, quote, respect rather than affection seems to have ruled the household. Um, and Gerald Posner, who wrote an early positive and detailed biography of Mengele, seems to embrace this view of Mengele early life that like the family was secure but not warm he wrote the relationship between his parents did not improve the emotional austerity of the Mengele home they were known as a quarrelsome pair Joseph wrote bitterly of his father as a cold figure and of his mother as not much better at loving although he came to admire her energy and decisive nature for the early parts of his life a nanny called Monica fulfilled the dominant maternal role coaxing and at times intimidating Joseph into holding fast the Catholic faith for his parental legacy at last Mengele was grateful in his autobiography he wrote, one could feel flattered that the family tradition going back generations was continued with the name of the father of Christ, Joseph. And this is, you know, it's it's weird because that seems to be like him saying, well, it was kind of a cold relationship. It wasn't very loving. Some of Mengele's own writings contradicts that. And David Marwell, who wrote a better biography of Mengele, I think, than Posner, tempers this attitude because he really does emphasize he has a big family. He seems to be very much wanted as a kid. Um, he has a lot of resources poured into him. Obviously, no childhood is perfect. The fact that he's deeply cared for and that his parents could be distant and stern can both coexist. You know? Yeah, they're fucking German. Yeah, they're they're German, right? Yeah, like like <laughs> yeah. this sounds like default German parents. And yeah, just like, yeah. Take on the trash! And, you know, and it's like, that's how you say I love you. In yeah. a way. Yeah. Yeah. Screaming at them. I remember yeah. I talked, I, I brought the, bring this guy up. One of the Nazis that I've, one of the old school Nazis, former Nazis that I talked to, you know, earlier in my life was a guy who'd been in the Hitler youth as a kid, war ended when he was 14. And he would talk about like his family life. And one of the stories he would tell is that like, and he's, he framed this as a pretty common kind of thing is, you know, the father in Prussian culture in particular was like the dictator of the family. This was actually a big aspect of kind of the way the Nazis talked about how the state should work. The father is the dictator of the family and the father follows the Fuhrer in a way that's very much like that, right? Right. The um, house is the fatherland. I get it. Yeah. And so he was like, well, a, a couple of times a week when we would have an egg, because eggs were hard to come by, we would all sit around the table and watch as my father ate the entire egg. And th that was like a thing we did as a family. <laughs> It's fucking it's Okay, so funny. children, get together. You're going to watch me eat the hard-boiled egg alone. <laughs> Tell now me imagine, more salt less salt. Imagine this egg is the, the frontier of Poland. <laughs> and we must crack it from the West. <laughs> Jesus. I love, yeah. I love, like, dogging your family like that. Yeah. Just, like, watch me eat the egg. You gotta watch That's... me eat this egg. You gotta learn respect, you know? One day, sure. you'll be the father eating the egg. <laughs> <laughs> Not sharing eggs with your family. Incredible stuff. You want some um, of this egg? Are you kidding? In Biden's America? <laughs> we, are, we are coming back around to the age of, uh, yes. of, of eggs in short supply. <laughs> um, so the same year that Joseph was born, Carl bought his first Benz automobile. Uh, he was well-respected as a boss uh, due to the fact that he was willing to get his hands dirty. He put in long hours. He seems to have been like a reasonably like easygoing guy, so I think his workers generally liked him. Um, in 1914, when Carl was or when Joseph was just three, a disastrous sandwich run ended with a Habsburg and shortly
shortly dying and shortly thereafter a war that destroyed much of Western Europe. Carl's workforce had ballooned to about 30 men by this point, but the war takes Carl away from his child in business, and he spends the next two years serving at the front. Joseph's mother had to take over for her husband, um, but that actually did not go badly for the family. World War One is terrible for everyone else in Germany, mm. but the Mengelas, the Mengelas kind of do great. Because under her leadership, their firm gets awarded a bunch of government contracts. They're making military vehicles and carts and shit for the army. Carl returns after two years at the front because the the firm has gotten so much bigger that, like, the government's like, we need you running your company rather than fighting. Mm-hmm. Um over the course of the war years, the Mengele family business triples in size and becomes one of the largest employers in the city of Gunsberg. Um, so everyone else spends World War I starving and uh, uh, desperate, but the Mengele's get rich. Um, yeah. So that's, that's good. He ate. Oh, he was having he was having three, four eggs a week sometimes, yeah. Matt. <laughs> making making all the goons of Goonsburg watch him yeah. eat it. <laughs> when the fighting stopped, Carl led a seamless pivot for his company back to the production of farming equipment. And by the early 1920s, it was the third largest threshing company in Germany. Um, and if you know Germans, they love to thresh. They're big thresh big culture. Big threshing. They thresh thistles. They're thistle oh, yeah. threshers. They love Thistle it. thrashers. Absolutely. So Mengele was now Gunsberg's largest employer. And Joseph's family was the first family in a growing city. Of course, the 20s were good for more than just threshing. They also yielded a bumper crop of fascists. Mm. Carl was not quite a fascist early on, Mm. but he was a wealthy conservative. um, And so he was not very far from the fascists either. He was fascist curious, maybe. Yeah, he was fascist curious, you know. Yeah. And I'm going to quote now from Marwell's Unmasking the Angel of Death. Mengele's father was, at least at some point, a member of the German National People's Party. He was not then a supporter of the Nazi Party, as suggested by some whose cite his having made one of his factory buildings available to Hitler for a campaign event in October 32. In fact, Karl first joined the Nazi Party in May of 1933, only after it gained power, in connection with his own bid for a seat on the city council, which had eluded his prior attempts in 1924 and 1929. According to historian uh, Zednek Zofka, Karl Mengele's political aspirations were less ideological than grounded in his desire to influence the local business climate. And the local Gunsberg Nazi party officials accused him of purchasing his seat through a generous contribution. So he is he is not an ideological Nazi. He's like, I want to have Hitler speak at my factory because it will help me like get a tax break later on. I like that. I can, I can work my way into pay. the city council. No. Yeah. I, I, it is kind of insane to me to like, yeah, go Nazi just to be like the president of the chamber of commerce. You know what I mean? I mean, that's, that's like 20% of the Nazi party. Right. Yeah. yeah. Like it's it, a and it's the 20% who had all the money. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. You could we could say something about the way various business associations and special economic districts um, mm-hmm. are kind of like uh, uh, reservoirs for fascism in the modern American context. These are the people right. pushing to put a lot of homeless folks in camps and stuff, mm-hmm. um, and how a lot of Carl Mengele's are still out there. Um, <laughs> so that's good stuff. Anyway, it's yeah, good to know. 
Yeah, uh, the, 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 the Nazis. The Nazis get electoral power in Weimar, uh, mm-hmm. thanks in large part to the fact that people like Karl are there to help fund them. Um, and also people like Karl, these upright businessmen who are not like wild-eyed Nazi mystics, right? They're not shouting mm-hmm. all of the crazy shit. So normal conservatives are like, well, Karl's now with the Nazis, so I guess maybe they're okay, you know? He's yeah. A, yeah. Um, yeah. Look at all the eggs he eats. Yeah, so, you know, he's, uh, this guy's got money. He's eating yeah. all the eggs. Maybe mm-hmm. there's something maybe, to this. Maybe this Hitler guy is going to take us some good places. <laughs> yeah. um, so for his part, Joseph's affluence allowed him to avoid all of the traumas of the era he was raised in. You know, the Weimar years are a tumultuous period for most Germans. He is not ever starving. Uh, his family is not ever dealing with like the inflation hits them too, but it's not causing them to be unable to pay for things that they need. Right. Um, like yeah, like eggs. And so he has a happy childhood. His family tends to recall him as a sunny and fun-loving child. Um, he liked to ride horses. His favorite way to help out the family business was to pull company transports away from the railroad on his draft horse. Mm. Um, very early, he's he's doing railroad shit, which is yeah. is unfortunate. Yeah, yeah. Um, he was just like, you know, I don't know what it is about trains, but I just... Uh, <laughs> I just feel drawn to them. I'm drawn to them. Yeah, so uh, Matt... Mm. This is going to be a bleak story, but I have some good news for you. I have some really good news for you. What is it? This is going to make everything a lot easier for us because... Is it Ether? (laughs) No, it's it's a nickname. Joseph Mengele has a nickname. Oh, yes. And his nickname is Beppo, which is Italian... For Giuseppe or Joseph, and yes. also is why the Buca di Beppo chain of Italian <laughs> restaurants, which is part of a proud fascist culinary yeah, tradition, sure, sure, is sure. named that. They're named in his honor. You can look it up. Um, Buca di Beppo. Yeah, yeah. We love a mangala. Well, Buca di Beppo literally means Beppo's hole, which is referring to Joseph Mengele's throat because he loved pasta so much. Mm. Look it up. Look it up. Yeah. I believe it. I believe mm-hmm. it. Yeah, he was a throat goat, you know, proto throat goat. Buca de Beppo, when you're here, you're a Nazi. <laughs> a, a lot of people don't know this. Every thousand dollars you spend at Buca de Beppo restaurants buys a sea mine to blow up a transport taking migrants from the north coast of Africa to Italy. Um, oh, I think that's the Buca de Beppo that. guarantee. Yeah. <laughs> that's... So if we, did we did we succeed in getting that big uh, big Beppo sponsorship yet? For some reason, I haven't heard back. <laughs> well, maybe Olive Garden will take us on. Yeah, um, no, I mean, but we go, you got to keep trying for Buca de Beppo. I mean, they have mm-hmm. s- such big plates of pasta. You don't want to ma- Massive plates of pasta. <laughs> yeah. Eat all the um, pasta, but yeah. do it in front of the Jew. <laughs> <laughs> so Beppo was a gifted student. He was never quite top of his class, um, which is also a thing you see with a lot of these like Nazi functionaries where like they do okay in school, but they're never quite the best. That's one mm. of the things Nazism offers people who feel Mediocrity. like they should have. Di- <laughs> yeah, I feel I did okay, but I feel like I should have done better based on the fact that I'm white. Ah, mm-hmm. the Nazis will make me feel special. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, yeah. Are so you he, the student? Do yeah. people think you're, I don't know, second tier? Yeah. Join the Nazis and we'll we'll convince you that no, you deserve to be in the first tier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll uh we'll we'll give you a chance to conduct the invasion of Russia. Um yeah. and yeah, Good prove luck. that you deserve to get better grades. <laughs> so, he was a uh, he likes music. Uh one of the things he does when he's a little kid is he writes a fairy tale to put on for the benefit of a local orphanage. Mm. Um 
Yeah, he's going to have a lot of stories that involve orphanages over the next few years. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Some less nice than others. Most less, yeah, a couple. So he was as community-oriented as was pretty normal for a German kid from his class in those days. He joins the Red Cross as a volunteer. He's in the Gross Deutsche Jugendbund, which is a a Boy Scouts analog that was pretty fascist. Um, He eventually becomes the leader of his town's Jugendbund uh, chapter, which consisted of 60 boys and 30 girls. So, hey, you know, they're at least... uh, mixed gender that's good yeah look at that yeah you know good for you yugenbund yeah maybe they'll be all right yeah end of pod (laughs) so joseph would later reminisce over one of the solstice celebrations that he organized for the yugenbund and oh boy matt quote we were proud of our big solstice fire which blazed into the heavens on a ridge opposite the hometown announcing that a small group of boys and girls today celebrated the solstice with fervent thoughts and desires in their hearts to awaken and arouse the people of their homeland to the holy struggle of liberation from the shackles Ooh. of the nefarious Versailles Treaty the fame oh. should li- the flames should liberate us and illuminate our way they should warm us with the love of our great people and of its high culture and they should incinerate all discord among Jesus us Germans <laughs> Uh, now I brought, look, I brought punch. Why yeah. is he speaking like this? <laughs> <laughs> we were going to make s'mores, but now I, things have gotten dark. I thought this was a bonfire. Why is this guy talking about a destruction like this? Um, okay. So, yeah, I should note that the Jugendbund did not accept Jews because, as Joseph what? would explain later in his diary, the quote, characteristic qualities of the German people could not be expressed if there was alien incrustation allowed to flourish yeah they they can't say the k word yeah that's literally just like oh she's a jews come all of a sudden we can't tell our killer jokes yeah now you could look at this and say like ah obviously he was going to grow into a nazi but historians Mm. will note that like this is pretty normal german anti-semitism like this this is pretty normal for the people who don't become nazis like the fact that this is a part of his his upbringing obviously it influences the nazi he becomes but we shouldn't pretend like he was being (laughs) directed into fascism it was more that like this was like all over the fucking place people were racist as hell (laughs) right yeah you can't like just look at yeah it it was just part of the norm it was the norm everyone was there's there's uh, communists who have this childhood right in this Right. People who grow up to be communists, who gr- who have experiences like this, it's not uncommon. Yeah. Um, obviously, those people often did a much better job of getting past it. But like, <laughs> he he has a pretty normal upbringing, racism wise. Yeah. Um, I found it Jews the normal amount. The normal which is all that's actually. I ask. <laughs> it's all I ask from people: just hate Jews the normal amount. Yeah, you know. Yeah, it's yeah. fine. I, yeah. I can live with the normal amount. Well, yeah, maybe put a pin in that one, Matt. Yeah, maybe not to live. I, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, given that this was the very early 1900s, Joseph's young life also had its requisite brushes with death. When he was six, Beppo fell into a rain barrel and very nearly drowned. Um, <laughs> comrade, comrade, anti-fascist rain barrel tried. It tried. Also, how do you Salute fall into a rain, rain barrel, Beppo? Yeah. Just a flag with a rain barrel that says, "I." tried <laughs> oh, I love these uh, anti-fascist rainbows mm-hmm. dude. it did its best it did more than us you know it, it did more to try to stop Mangala um, yeah. and it, it it's going to this rain barrel incident's going to linger with him for a while because he gets a, a case of rain blood poisoning Beppo, new nickname yeah. So he, he winds up sick after this and kind of like, 
A long series of illnesses leads him to getting osteomyelitis, which is a bone marrow inflammation. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, and so he's going to be, after this rain barrel incident and, like, some incidents that come after it, he's going to be, like, a really sick kid. Um, all told, though, he's he's on what you might call the precocious gifted kid track in school. Um, he earns really good grades in primary school, kind of average grades in his secondary school because he's absent so often because of he he's sick, he gets kidney infections, right, all this kind of, of shit. Because of the barrel. And anyway, all of the health problems leads to his family sitting down and being like, well, we wanted him to run the company, but he he's kind of like always dying. Yeah. So maybe we, maybe we give his little brother the company, and he can just figure his own shit out if he ever stops dying. Um, that's the decision his very German family makes. Yeah. Um, and so Alois is groomed to lead the family firm. And Joseph, as he nears graduation, is forced to find something new to do with his life. And oh he doesn't God. write about this in detail. He seems to have been kind of ashamed of this. I think this really fucked him up. And to be honest, it fucked a lot of us up, because we, we would all prefer Joseph Mengele farming machine manufacturer. Oh, Seriously, dude. Um, one of the greatest <laughs> mistakes ever is not yeah. just giving him control of the company. Yeah, he let him invented some nice combination. Yeah, he, he would have made tractors or shit. You know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Would have been it, fine. <laughs> it threshes um, and it plants at the same time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, the only they- combination machine you need. <laughs> um, speaking of combination machines, you know, Mingala. Machine Works makes an incredible range of uh, of domestic plows, of threshing machines, of Ooh. mowers. Um, you know, why don't we uh, why don't we have our sponsors at Mengele just kind of cut in here and uh, and throw in an ad? They got a promo code for you. Um, so if you want twenty percent off of Mengele products, just enter <laughs> promo code not that Mengele. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Mm-hmm. My favorite spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. Wow, how have I been living like this? It's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless, when Mint Mobile has phone plans for 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. Wow, how have I been affording this? It's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for 15 bucks a month. Say bye-bye to your overpriced wireless plans, jaw-dropping monthly bills, and unexpected overages. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans starting at 15 bucks a month. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash behind. That's mintmobile.com slash behind. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash behind. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. 
In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ah, we're back. So, good stuff. Uh, So, as he's kind of nearing graduation and trying to figure out what he's going to do with his life now that the thing he'd prepared for as a child was not a possibility for him anymore, Joseph thought back often to his favorite high school teacher, Uri, a gifted educator who, to the detriment of all mankind, succeeded in sparking in Joseph a lifelong love of the sciences. Um, Again, never teach children. It's a horrible idea. See, Um, this this is why I'm against women in STEM. (laughs) Because I don't want them to become mangalas. It's Mm. that simple. Is that it? Is that it? Excellent. Um, (laughs) And men in STEM. And men in STEM. No no one in science. No. This is why we need to put more lead in the gasoline. Yeah. Make it impossible for people to do science and we'll solve all of our problems. Yeah, Um, exactly. Yeah, you know, we'll just have plagues every now and then. But a plague's nobody's fault, you know? Yeah, that's God. Yeah, that's, that's God. God. Saying, Let's exactly. send the numbers out. He's probably angry at us because we didn't pray enough for rain or something, mm-hmm. you know? Who mm-hmm. knows? Maybe we got to, oh, now, yeah, now we're sacrificing people again. It all comes back to child sacrifice one way or the other. So yeah. Yuri teaches him to love science, uh, which would prove to be a horrible mistake. And as he ends the near, the, nears the end of his primary school days, which the Germans called gymnasium, um, Joe Joseph's favorite subjects are all hard science. He especially loved zoology and biology, but his favorite course of study was the budding new discipline of anthropology. Oh, boy. Oh, Uh boy. Yeah. I'm going to quote now from David Marwell's Mengele. In April 1930, he passed his abitur, the high school exams, with a promising but unexceptional grade. His father had counseled him that what counted was what one achieved, not what one set out to achieve. Initially, Joseph considered becoming a dentist, since he was convinced it would be very profitable. There was not even one dentist in my native town. But after discussions with his school friend, Julius Dysback, a young Mengele decided dentistry was too specialized. He opted instead for medicine, with an emphasis on anthropology and human genetics, so I could study the whole range of medicine. Thus, yeah. Joseph. Yeah, it's, yeah, that's good. That, that, yeah, don't go specific. You don't want to be a specialist. You want to get real broad. In fact, yeah. you want to get so broad that you're just taking wild guesses based on. Yeah, you, you, you want to convince yourself that you have a much deeper understanding than you do because you 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 skimmed a couple of textbooks about like <laughs> history and race and ear right. shape. Um, that's going to be good for you. So part of why he's drawn to this so much is that no one in his family had done anything like this. There weren't any PhDs in his family. There weren't any scientists in his family. He brags to his friend Diesback, my family will be very impressed when I become the very first Mengele scientist. 
Yes, Oops. people will remember the name <laughs> Dr. Mangala. He's not wrong. There is a bunch of shit he writes when he's young about how I want people to remember my name and mission accomplished. Yeah, Joseph. you did it. Congrats, yeah, right. you did it, buddy. Good shit. Um, so this is where we're going to have to have the first of a couple of detours because you can't tell the story of Joey Meng's properly without telling the story of anthropological sciences in the late 1800s and early 1900s and how they became wedded to nationalist politics in the post-war German state. The origins of race science, as Mengele came to know it, actually start back in like the 1700s. One of the earliest developments in what would become Mengele's field happened in 1727 when the Earl of Boulanvilliers attempted to make a scientific argument that the French nobility were descended from a superior race of long-headed Nordics. The French peasantry, he argued, were just descended from the Gauls that Caesar had beaten, and thus the rule of the French royal family was enshrined in immutable biological law. Dude, wait, hold on. Are you trying to tell me that science was just used mm-hmm. in order to justify uh, royal nobility and uh, king's rules? Is that what yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like the root of a lot of genetic science in addition to the stuff that was like, I want to see if we can crossbreed peas, which is, you know, groundbreaking work was also like, oh, maybe this will allow us to find another reason why we should never, never not be in charge. Yeah, um, well, you got to take the good with the bad. Yeah, they yeah, that's, out, you know, that's really the history of genetics in a nutshell. Yeah, you got to take the good with the bad. I mean, you know, you got to assure genocides here and there, but also seedless watermelon. Also seedless watermelons, no exactly. Spitty. Look, you get some seedless watermelons, you get, you know, hundreds of thousands of people being burnt to a crisp in Auschwitz. Yeah. Who's to say, you know, who's yeah. to say? And if you yeah. you know if you think and dwell on that and you feel bad, smoke some sensimilia, dude. Yeah, seedless exactly. weed, bro. Seedless weed. Also bred using the great science of Galton. Um <laughs> or Lynette, yeah, whatever. Um okay. I think it was Galton who did that shit. So his argument, uh, the Earl of Boulanvilliers or whatever, did not spread that far beyond France, but the work of early naturalists would provide a shot in the arm for future rich assholes looking to make similar arguments to justify subjugation. One of the first scientists in this field, who's not a bastard, was the father of modern taxonomy and binomial nomenclature, Carolus Linnaeus, who you probably heard about in middle school or high school. Carolus, obviously, not a Nazi. Uh, he saw, you know, and in fact, there's some really progressive attitudes towards what he thought about the world. He saw humanity as another species in the animal kingdom, which given the way Christians talked about animals in this period of time was a pretty noteworthy belief. Um, Linnaeus noted that there were many subspecies of other mammals like dogs and cats. You know, you've got wolves and you've got, uh, coyotes and you've got all these different, and I don't know if he used that specific example, but that kind of stuff. And he was like, well, you should probably categorize humans the same way, which given the era of of science he's in is not a bad thing, but it's going to cause some problems later because he divides the human race into four subspecies, European, American, Asiatic, and African. Um, I don't think Carolus means much by it, but uh, it's going to become a problem. Yeah. I mean, you know, he tried his best, but I got to say that classification was a bit careless. Oh, oh, sorry. Wow. (laughs) Wow. Incredible. Because he sounds like 
All right, move uh, on. No, you know what? That's a t-shirt right there. Um, yeah, uh, we'll, sure. yeah, we'll figure it out. All of that. Put it all in a shirt. Mm. So Linnaeus is a Swede, uh, and one of his most influential colleagues is a Dutch man, the anatomy professor Petrus Camper. Camper spent way too much time, and Linnaeus, again, groundbreaking scientist, uh, Camper is a little sillier because one of the things this guy does is he spends a shitload of time looking at old statues like that the Greeks had made and mm-hmm. being like, God, why are these people so hot? They must, <laughs> this must be, this must be evidence that they are like the master race. And we've all, we're all like brute, like descendants of them whose blood has been dirtied by race mixing is kind Dude, of the, you, this, you just yeah. described the mindset of like so many Twitter it's, it's, accounts. It's all, it's yeah, it, exactly. All of these like traditional vibes, Twitter <laughs> yeah, accounts are yeah, like, yeah, look exactly. at this statue. Trend why vibes. don't we look like this anymore? They're like, look it's, how hot the statue is. And guess what? That's a normal penis size. <laughs> it's normal. It's very funny because like a thousand years from now, after, you know, mm-hmm. the the nuclear war or the mushroom plague or whatever sure. gets us, some scientist is going to find old copies of Us magazine and start doing a <laughs> racial taxonomy. There's four subspecies. There's the Beyonce. There's the Pascal. There's the Cruz. And there's the like. <laughs> yeah, no, seriously. They're just going to be like, there were no mm-hmm. flaws anywhere in their mm-hmm. skin. Uh, yeah. Sometimes. They had no belly button, which may have been a airbrush mistake. But I'm just I'm just imagining like year four thousand Nazis like marching half naked under a banner of Post Malone, just just looking at a bunch of fucking like old vines and old TikTok filters, and just being like, you know, the master race of the time sometimes had this. uh, uh, They had dog ears, Mm -hmm. and when they would open their mouth, a tongue would roll out. Yeah, and all. They would have the butterflies around the eyes. So future Catholic mixing has destroyed us. Future Catholic stained glass release. Instead of like <laughs> having the uh, the the halos above their head, they're just all yassified. Yassified <laughs> <laughs> so, Jesus. It was 1795 that we first get the term Caucasian, uh, coined by Johann Blumenbach, who was, of course, a German. Uh, Blumenbach used the term to, quote, describe the variety of mankind that originated on the southern slopes of Mount Caucasus along uh, Europe's eastern border. He described Caucasians as the original race and the most beautiful. Mm. Now, okay, well, here yeah, we go. Here we go. Yep, we're uh, we're off to the races now, oh, Matt. Yeah. Let's do it. None of this can be separated by the, from the Atlantic slave trade, which is starting to roar at the time, or from the ongoing genocides in the Americas, both of which cry out for a scientific, rational explanation that lets Enlightenment Europeans feel good about the crimes against humanity they're committing. Absolutely. Right? It would be one thing to be like. I don't know, man. Look back at the Romans. Look back at like fucking Han China. Look at people forever. We always are murdering and raping and enslaving each other. We're just like that. But right. Europeans don't want to do that. They want right. to be like, like, no, but we're liberals. Yeah, we want. There's a scientific reason we should right, be exactly. doing this. You yeah, know, we read philosophy and we understand, yeah. you know, uh, how precious the the human soul is. Yeah, but. I think science says those guys are not human, so yeah, kill all yeah. of them. Yeah, it's really easier for someone else to make my drinks for me, so I'm gonna I'm gonna write a lot of books. <laughs> exactly, dude, dude. Um, 
<laughs> That's why you so, get your PhD is just to justify exploiting yeah. every person of color <laughs> this, you see. This is like fully half of genetic science. Yes. Yeah. Um, so in the 1800s, a generation of scientists arose that took the start Blumenbach and Camper and Linnaeus had made and extended their conclusions much further. Samuel Morton theorized in the mid-1800s that intelligence was linked to brain size, declaring that white people had larger skulls and were thus superior. <laughs> Morton's <laughs> yeah, this is he's like this is like one of the one of the precursors to phrenology for Hell sure. Yeah. Morton's work is quoted and shared extensively by journalists and, and teachers in the era, and it becomes accepted as settled science by a lot of white people. Mm-hmm. Now, there was disagreement even in this period um, by principled men of science like Friedrich Tiedemann, who was also a German. To be fair, like the Germans are on both sides of this, fighting against it as well. And Tiedemann, using the very best scientific methods of the day, tries to replicate Morton's research about like, you know, well, obviously white people have the biggest brains and mm-hmm. he can't repeat it. Repeatability is a cornerstone of the scientific method. It's the whole thing. Do, yeah, it's, the whole thing. Uh, it's a big part of it. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and he can't do it. So he's like, I'm going to quote actually from a write-up in Facing History that kind of summarizes this. He also found no evidence for the racial hierarchy, a kind of racial ladder on which Caucasians always stood at the top and Africans at the bottom, that Morton had claimed to uncover. Tiedemann's work did not attract much attention. It was largely ignored or dismissed as unscientific. Um, But I don't think we should. I think like as much shit as we're going to rightfully give the German scientific establishment this episode, we should note there are always guys like Tiedemann being like, fuck this shit what are you talking about yeah, you people yeah, are yeah. like this idiots like not no not true and not, very stupid. not right yeah, yeah. um and, and he's not the, a, the whole idea of like yeah. you know on its face it is just the dumbest funniest thing that these guys yeah. are scientists and they're going oh the bigger brain may make more smart and mm-hmm. i'm just like have, what the fuck are you like it's like the same reason that people you know green like movies like the meg where they're like yeah. what if shark big Bigger shark, better shark. It's like very stupid. You got to be kind of, uh, you got to, you got to be kind of a dumb guy to like, be like, yeah, big brain. Yeah. A lot of it's just like, you know, the, the, the under, like this kind of belief that I think a lot of people, particularly people who are kind of inherently conservative have that like, it's uncomfortable thinking that there might be other equally valid ways to live that are also it require an equal but different level of development and scientific understanding mm-hmm. one of my favorite examples of this there's a great story there's this place in god it's somewhere in the amazon i forget exactly which modern day country it's in but it, it's generally known to anthropologists and archaeologists as the lost city of z that mm-hmm. like there were in like the late 1800s i think early 1900s a bunch of these you know exploration age western scientists are always trying to find because i think there's supposed to be gold there or some shit and one of the guys who's who's looking for it the most does like three trips there and every one of them goes the same way he enters the amazon with like a hundred men and like six of them come out a year and a half later and everyone else has died horribly and on like his third trip in there they're all starving they're on the edge of death they're sick and they finally run into a group of natives who are like willing to talk with them mm-hmm. and the the natives are like 
what you guys look like shit what what's going on and they're like this this jungle is a green desert there's no food at all and they like break a like this they grab this plant and break it in half and like toss it in a pond and a bunch of fish float up to the top because the the plant was full of a neurotoxin that they knew you just dump this in the water it stuns the fish then you just grab them they're like look there's all sorts of food around here (laughs) what's wrong with you guys have you all just been dying and not not knowing this (laughs) um oh yeah yeah, yeah because big enough. yeah i mean yeah they had spent all of their time writing books about skull shape whereas mm-hmm. these people had spent their time figuring out how to uh, uh turn their home into a, a fucking giant grocery store yep. um i don't know i know what i find more impressive but yeah. <laughs> yeah um i mean europeans do other stuff too right they make they make boats so that those are cool yeah. um so that's how we get the movie Master and Commander. So who's to say, right? You That's know? true. Who's to say? That's true. It's a mix you can't of discount that. That was no, a triumph. That was a triumph. Um, that's occurring around this period of time. Um, and Ooh. also, unfortunately, the scientist on that boat, the doctor guy, probably had some race science books on on that boat with him. Like, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm, afra- know, I'm afraid it's unavoidable. Else, they have <laughs> yeah. all sorts of books. You, you can't fault so, someone. For- yeah, you can't fault them. Um, I don't know. I've, I've only read one of the books that that movie's based on. Good movie, though. So yeah. Tiedemann is not the only guy who's pushing back scientifically on the arguments of kind of scientific bigots in his period. Um, now, to be noteworthy, the guys who are like arguing against some of this early race science, their science is often bad, too, right? The fact mm. that they are like see properly that their colleagues are making bad arguments doesn't mean their arguments are scientifically flawless. A good example of this is the seventh president of Princeton, Samuel Smith, who speculated that black people were human beings just like white people, and they were just black because a large freckle had spread over their entire body due to sun exposure. uh, It's close? (laughs) Okay. It's melanin? His his heart is in the right place. I, I get where he's yeah yeah he's not he's almost there yeah he's he's got pieces of it so dr <sighs> benjamin rush meanwhile argued that all babies are born white and that black skin was the result of mild leprosy um now <laughs> this kind of shows how sloppy the scientific method is because like i don't know you could just look at a baby like That's pretty easy to disprove. You can just look at a baby, but, you know, whatever. Um, As a general rule, the scientists arguing that there were perceived... So basically, you have kind of two groups here. You have the scientists arguing there is a racial hierarchy, and these are different subspecies, right? Mm -hmm. And you have the scientists arguing that, like, all of the differences that we see are the result of either nurture or environmental exposure, not immutable characteristics. Um, And the ones who are making that argument, even when their science is bad, are at least less likely to espouse racism to justify entrenched power structures. Now, that doesn't mean it doesn't happen because a decent chunk of like the people arguing for slavery in the 1800s are being like, oh, eventually we'll, you know, raise them up to be our equals. It's just we have to keep them enslaved until then. So that is like, you know, there's a lot of different things being said in this period. Um... Yeah, so there's a lot of cool stuff happening in early race science. One of my favorite guys here is Lord Monbado, a Scottish philosopher who believed that he was he's one of these guys who it's all about environmental exposure and like what like uh nurture and stuff. And his big argument is that like one day we will train chimpanzees to be integrated into society. 
<laughs> like we'll have chimpanzees in parliament. I like, I, God, I wish he'd been right. <laughs> honestly, I like where his brain's going with this. I wish I like he'd the, been right. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, they do a better job than those clowns in Congress. Am I right? That's right. <laughs> I mean, uh, I, yeah. I would, I would, I would vote for any living chimpanzee over almost any living Congress. They probably don't have to ask the CEO of TikTok if uh, their phones connect to Wi-Fi. No, they're <laughs> just the happy to look that? at the dancing lights. You know, yeah, exactly. They don't, they don't care about Wi-Fi. They're they're chimpanzees, and they're not um, cowards. And if they really disagree with someone, no. they will tear them limb from oh, limb. Oh man, can you imagine if we had like Congress fights like we had in the 1800s, but with a bunch of chimps oh that would fucking so rule sick, it would dude. fucking C-SPAN rule would be the number one network. that's all i watch i would just go into congress and like toss a bunch of bananas in the middle of the floor <laughs> <laughs> let's get them fighting i, I feel like mm-hmm. the the chimpanzees wouldn't go what are you gonna do about finsta yeah right <laughs> so embarrassing no no yeah. it is embarrassing we would have a lot more land devoted to banana cultivation um i feel like they don't actually eat bananas and i heard that at some point but fuck it like <laughs> yeah. th- look whenever we get something like this wrong it gives some beautiful redditor a chance to be like well actually yeah oh, um, oh my time has come uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> and god 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 bless you i just want to make you people happy so yeah you should do all it. of you these scientists break now though you know sophie robert yes i'm scott weinberger journalist and former deputy sheriff in my new podcast series cold-blooded the apollo jim murders i'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter billy halper just a shame you know that they took him from us experience this investigation in a truly unique way knocking on doors uncovering new evidence including the dna of a potential killer uh, my name is danny smith i'm a detective uh, with Miramar police department this is scott weinberger we're actually reopening an old case and your name came up untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder but almost a dozen thought they were going to kill me so i kept my mouth shut and i didn't say anything all these years i didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature. And of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. 
these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're back! Oh, sorry. (laughs) I was waiting for a speaking of bananas or something. Yeah, Yeah. so there's a lot of scientists in this period, the kind of anti-race science guys, who believe that all of the differences between men and women uh, and between different races that they believed existed would be reduced by social reform and legislation. Mm -hmm. Um, And you can see kind of evidence of this in the French Revolution, these ideas of liberty, egality, and fraternity. Um, The fact that it comes with like increased civil rights to to Jewish people in Mm -hmm. the French Empire. These are all results of that intellectual tradition. But progressive ideals like this always have their limits. And again, slave owners would use versions of this argument to justify aspects of what they were doing. Um, Once slavery falls in the United States, there's kind of a panic among a lot of people that race mixing is going to occur and thus would disastrously water down the potential of the species. Racial hygiene became a common topic of discussion among medical professionals in the late 1800s. And the two countries most associated with this movement are the United States and Germany. Wow, that's so mm. shocking. Oh, my God. Yeah, it who, is. And who would have thunk I, it? Yeah. yeah. Not, who, not my America. So the, that's not my America, guys. The, the, <laughs> my America is in my um, head, and it's made up of all of the things yeah. of my morals. So my America, you know, doesn't have stock rooms full of skulls of people that came from somewhere. Um, <laughs> yeah, nope, not in my yeah. America. It's a so, land of milk and honey. You know, we'll talk. We have talked about race science in the United States a number of times, but right now we're getting back to Germany. So the Ooh. Kaiser's Germany had started to invest on in research on racial heredity a few years prior to World War One. Actually, the year before Joseph Mengele is born, the Reich Health Office puts together a file on Russian hygiene, um, which actually think, sounds more racist than race yeah. hygiene. Yeah, um, it's it's much worse than the German. Russian <laughs> um, yeah. hygiene. It's So it included studies on population control and papers on racial differences between Germans and Jews. Now, the Kaiserreich, very racist. This is evidence of that. But when the war comes, all of this kind of talk of differences, it doesn't go away, but it fades a lot. Because the Germans are suddenly like, you know who dies exactly the same in front of a machine gun? Jews and Germans, and we need a lot more of both if we're going to get rid of all these allied bullets. <laughs> um, you know, both have uh, opposable thumbs and a little index finger that go pew pew, <laughs> the Jews and the Germans. Yeah, so, uh, we can all do it. Let's um, table the race thing for a second. For a little bit. Figure out yeah. how to, uh, you know, take over Europe. I mean, kind of famously, Hitler gets awarded uh, his Iron Cross in part due to the uh, the intervention of his officer, who's a Jewish man. Like this is a um, the Kaiserreich. A lot of this stuff still exists. It's budding. It's building. Um, but it's also not 
like the same as it's going to be. So as a result, it's during the Weimar years that things really take a leap forward. In 1920, the Prussian Interior Council creates a council on racial hygiene to discuss how to grow the German population and halt illegal abortion. While such work always had support from the right, initially at least, there is significant interest among scientists across the ideological spectrum. And to make that point, I'm going to quote now from Robert Proctor's book, Racial Hygiene, Medicine Under the Nazis. Many racial hygienists supported a kind of state socialism whereby a strong central government would direct social policy towards programs to improve the race. The Society for Racial Hygiene allied itself with a number of groups advocating social reform. Conversely, many of those today remembered as progressives were attracted by the movement to improve the health of the race. Alfred Grotejohn, for example, today considered the father of German social medicine and one of the leading architects of Weimar Germany's progressive health reforms, saw racial hygiene is a legitimate concern of medicine. He was one of those who defended the use of the term eugenics rather than racial hygiene in order to avoid confusion with racist notions of the political anthropological variety. According to Grotjohn, racial hygiene would provide long-range preventative medicine for the germ plasma of humanity that would complement both traditional curative medical care and concerns for the human physical and social environment provided by public health and social medicine. Racial hygiene, along with social hygiene and personal hygiene, was simply one element in a larger, more comprehensive program of human health care. Grosjean's views earned him the respect of more devout racial hygienists. He was one of the few social hygienists in the Weimar Republic willing to advocate compulsory sterilization. He also advocated for increased powers to commit upwards of a million defective A socials to psychiatric institutions. After 1933, German theorists, or Nazi racial theorists, were able to turn to Grotjohn as an example of a socialist who supported strong measures in the field of racial hygiene. So mm. this is a thing that doesn't get talked about enough. That is the father of the German welfare state in a lot of ways, Grotjohn. And in like, at least in the healthcare portion of it, he is a social Democrat. Um, and he is in favor of committing a million a social people involuntarily to uh, uh, institutions and sterilizing in mass people he views as defective. You know, um, the same I'll, thing as brushing your teeth. Yeah, it's the same It's the same as any kind of hygiene. It's like you taking know? a shower, you know? Yeah, so um, you take a shower and then you, uh, you know, you round up people. Yeah, you start putting them in buses, camps, trains. And a lot of, it's worth, we talk, when we talk about race science, we because of what happens and because of all of the worst crimes are in fact committed by the Nazis when the right is in power, we do tend to ignore the fact that eugenics and race science in Germany are popular everywhere, including with communists. Um, the idea of a planned genetic future is something that German communists are going to embrace as well for at least a period of time. And it's yeah, not just Germans in just Germany. can't help themselves. Yeah. No. Well, it's not just the Germans either. In 1925, the leading there's a Soviet leading eugenics journal that mm. publishes translations of German articles on racial hygiene with positive remarks. And partly as a result of this, Weimar Germany and the Soviet Union establish a joint institute for racial biology in Moscow between 1931 and 1938. There's overlap there with the Nazi years. There's a All period right, well, of time. You're making the point that, yeah. you know, there's uh, some sort of racial element for white people where they mm. love race science. Yeah. I don't know how to work that into my worldview. It's interesting. I mean, this is part of, there's a bigger story here, which is like during the 30s, because both are kind of pariah nations, the Soviet Union and Weimar and the Nazi Germany 
actually have a lot going on together. Their militaries train together. They do all sorts mm. of like have all sorts of like. I mean, this is part of what um, kind of lays some of the bones for the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. Right. But race science is not absent from the Soviet Union in this period. Um, many people know that the Third Reich's genocidal efforts began with the T4 euthanasia program, in which people who were physically handicapped or seen as feeble-minded were put to death in traveling gas vans. Less is known that in 1928, it was socialist Dr. Rainier Fetcher, who carried out some of the first sterilizations in German history. He is doing eugenic sterilizations on his own without any permission. He's like breaking the law to do this, and he's like a socialist activist. Now, the point here is not that socialists and Nazis had the same attitude towards eugenics. It's just that eugenics beliefs were popular even among socialists and communists. Obviously, the Nazis are the ones who use these ideas to massacre 12 million people in the service of race science. (laughs) Um, I'm bringing this up because you have to note that when you're talking about the origins of these ideas that are accelerated by the Nazis and adopted by them, they are not controversial among a lot of scientists, even scientists who find fascism abhorrent. There's a lot of anti-fascist scientists who nonetheless believe the Nazis are not entirely wrong about race science um Mm. that's the period that we're in so probably the most significant development in the early history of german race science is the establishment of the kaiser wilhelm institute for anthropology human genetics and eugenics um very we know today kaiser permanente (laughs) kaiser permanente (laughs) yeah yeah that's what kaiser permanente stands for the permanent (laughs) kaiser actually if they are responsible for your health care you are legally a servant of the kaiser that's how it works Mm -hmm. that's my insurance yeah Yeah, the kaiser by the way now is an ai generated creature because that ai is really able to i was gonna do i was gonna do a hand i was gonna do a hand joke but you know what that's not appropriate yeah Um, So that Kaiser Wilhelm Institute gets started in 1927, also in Prussia, which is kind of the stronghold of militarist conservatism in Germany. Support for the institute came from the very top of the Weimar state, though, including the president of the state health office and its chief medical statistician, Emil Rossel, who argued in favor of preventing marriage of the mentally ill to healthy Germans. This did not occur in a vacuum. Rossel noted that England, Sweden, the United States, and Norway all had similar institutes doing similar things. When the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute opened its doors, Eugene Fisher was appointed director. He was a nationalist Catholic, uh, but not a Nazi early on. And in fact, a lot of his early research is kind of contra to the conclusions the Nazis are making. One of the things he'll argue is that hybridization leads to better health in European races. Like he does a bunch of studies about, oh, actually, when you're like, when you've got Germans and, you know, Slavs and English and we're all breeding, everything turns out better. Um, That's one of the things this guy argues. Um, He's he's kind of an interesting guy. One of the things he notes is that like where it has remained the most pure, the Nordic race has brought forth no great cultural achievements, which is very much not a Nazi attitude. (laughs) Yeah, no, um, I love it. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and that said, he's going to, once the Nazis take power, he's going to stop saying this shit and start pushing hardcore Nazi dogma. And he's going to bring in a lot of scientists who are just straight up Nazis. And the most influential of these is a guy named Otmar von Verschur, who is a war veteran and a member of the right-wing Freikorps paramilitary. He is also a scientist studying genetics and race who is particularly fascinated with twins. Oh boy! Bum bum bum! No! Oh God! 
Yeah, no, it's not. Look, there's very rarely does it end well when people are fascinated with twins. Uh, Yeah, one way or the other, a lot of fucked up shit comes from that. (laughs) Yeah, whether it's uh, Nazi experiments or being weirdly attracted to those beer commercials. mm -hmm, Exactly. Uh, Yeah, or the doublement ones. So the doublement. Why do people want to fuck twins? It's the it's the it's incest is going on. So I don't. I'm not into it. I'm mm -hmm. on record. Wow, that's that's another T-shirt. Yeah, yeah. Just a hey. picture of your face. I'm yeah. not into twins. I'm not into twins. Gross. <laughs> Matt That's Lieb. incest. Mm-hmm. Matt, no, leave a statue of you breaking a packet of double mint gum in half. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a big red um, guy. Mm-hmm. Now, big reds—that that's an anti-fascist. It really gum. is. Big mm-hmm. red is uh, mm-hmm. literally Stalin's gum of choice. Mm-hmm. Now, the Although, anarchist gum is, of course, Big League Chew. That's right. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> look it up. Look it up. So, after Hitler takes power, Fischer, you know, starts going hardcore into the Nazi stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. He praises the Nazis as the first political movement to recognize that culture is the product of quote the qualities of the race that has given rise to and carry it on that culture. Fisher draws a line between the Marxists and men of natural science and national socialism when he says, the Marxist socialist view concerns itself with the single individual. We national socialists, in contrast, concern ourselves with the family. Oh, here we go. There's a a Margaret Thatcher quote that always (laughs) makes me think think about which is yeah. there's no such thing as society there are men and women and there are families um yep. but there's probably nothing to that probably nothing to that there's um, always a really relevant margaret thatcher quote when talking there, about nazi stuff <laughs> there really is um but that's a subject for another day let us return to our buddy jojo mingy poo so jojo mm-hmm. mangy mang yeah yeah My jo- mang. jojo the mangala um so the nazis are not in power when he joins munich university as a student in philosophy and the medical schools um but they he's like doing an anthropology medical kind of thing where he's getting like his phd and his md kind of at the same time it's easier to get both back then. Um, So while the Nazis are not yet in power, race science is humming right along. When Joseph starts school, the Nazis are the second largest party in the Reichstag. He would later write about his early impressions of the National Socialist Party. I was not then old enough to vote. My political leanings were then, I think for reasons of family tradition, national conservative. I had not joined any political organization, though indeed I was strongly attracted by the program and the whole organization of the National Socialists. But for the time being, I remained an unorganized private person. But in the long run, it was impossible to stand aside in these politically stirring times. Should our fatherland not succumb to the Marxist-Bolshevist attack, this simple political concept finally became the decisive factor in my life. So, yeah, it all always starts with an obsession with anti-communism with these guys. It really does. Um, it's uh, yeah. that is always the root. And of course, root right communism there. is Jewish in their eyes. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. wow, one Woo. thing leads to another. Oh wow, wow, good God, <laughs> how rude um, indeed, Jar Jar. How wow. rude indeed. Um, yes, Jar Jar. Some people gonna die. Um, <laughs> good God. Good God. Uh, good, good God. Uh, Matt. What? Any pluggables to plug? Oh, you know, same stuff. Uh, you know, if you like mm-hmm. The Sopranos or The Wire and you want to, you know, rewatch it or just listen to guys, you know, talk about it, pod yourself a gun. It is uh, the world's only The Wire and, uh, you know, Sopranos podcast. Um, yeah. So I plug that. And, um, you know, uh, I'll be all right. 
This mm-hmm. is going to be a fun one. I'm very excited. You know, I'm very excited for what's coming. And uh, I'm going to just pet my child for a little bit. Yeah, I'm going to pet a child, too. I'll go find one. It's not hard. Yeah, yeah I don't it's know not hard. that wording is really good for you, buddy. No, Sophie, I got a net. It's fine. Um, All right. Well, that's going to do it for us here at, at Behind the Bastards. Um, Until next time, you know. Um, if look, there is a next time after that comment. <laughs> fishing Christ. net works just as well on kids. Um, Anyway. Repeating it really helps. It always does. God bless you all. Behind the Bastards is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.